Some of your neighbors are out on the river, they're at the beach, they're doing something else, and they don't know why every week you get up to worship God. They laugh at you for taking the Lord's Day seriously. They scoff at you for the different set of standards that you follow for raising your children. All you know is that you have a truth from the Word of God, and you may not understand it, but you believe it, and therefore you obey it. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor at Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. We're near the end of our biographical study of the prophet Elijah. In chapter 2 of 2 Kings, we see Elijah preparing to pass the prophet's mantle on to Elisha. As we pick up, we find prophets in both Bethel and in Jericho telling Elisha that his mentor Elijah is going to be taken away on this particular day. We see in both verses 3 and 5 that Elisha tells the other prophets to be still, as the thought of Elijah's departure is very painful. Now, in both cities, Elisha politely responds. He says, be quiet in essence. Don't talk to me about it. It's too painful for him. Again, remember their relationship together is only covered in two chapters, but because of the chronology that God gives us, it covers a period of 10 years. They had become no doubt close friends in the Lord. And when you have a brother in the Lord, there's just a kinship that's hard to explain. Verse 4, Elijah said to him, Elisha, please stay here for the Lord has sent me to Jericho. But he said, as the Lord lives, and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they came to Jericho. Now, again, for the people of Israel, Jericho is another important spot of great historical significance. It would be much like our Independence Hall. It represented the power of God, the victory of God, and it was the entrance into the land of promise. This was the place where Israel had to walk by faith. It was the first major conquest they had to believe God for to be able to enter into the promised land. Now, remember, God had promised a land that would flow with milk and honey, but between that magnificent land and them was this great and fortified city of Jericho. And archaeology reveals that this is one of the oldest cities ever uncovered. It was a strong city. It was a powerful city. It seemed impregnable, unconquerable. It seemed unbeatable. And this city is the obstacle. It's the fortress between them and all that God had promised the nation of Israel. Listen, when God needs a job done, especially a gigantic job, he looks for a man, he looks for a woman, a boy, a girl, a teenager of faith, and that's the one who always gets the contract. Now, don't lose your place here, but turn back to the left to the book of Joshua chapter 5. That's right after the Torah, the Pentateuch, Penta 5, Tukos, law, five books of the law. The Jews call it the Torah, or sometimes they just call it Moses. The next book right after Moses, the five books is Joshua. Go to Joshua chapter 5. Now, if you remember, the book of Deuteronomy closes with Moses' death, with the torch of leadership moving from Moses to Joshua. And so now they're ready to capture the land, but the entrance to the land is 
is blocked by this pagan city of Jericho. And so God needs to do something in the heart of Joshua that he might trust him for the walls to crumble. And what transpires before the walls crumble in many ways is more important than the walls crumbling themselves. Look, if you will, it sounds like you found it. Joshua chapter 5, starting now in verse 13. Now it came about when Joshua was by Jericho that he lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, a man was standing opposite him with the sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? He said, No. Rather, I indeed come now as captain of the hosts of the Lord. And Joshua fell on his face and bowed down and said to him, What has my Lord to say to his servant? The captain of the Lord's host said to Joshua, Remove your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Now, Joshua is a general. He had been surveying the problem, and as he's surveying the problem, he encounters this man with a drawn sword, and he asks him the question, are you for us or against us? Are you friend or are you foe? Are you for them or for us? The man just answers no, a rather frustrating answer. He doesn't say, I'm with you. He doesn't say, I'm against you. He just says no. And by that, he's saying, I'm not for you. I'm not against them. I am the captain of the Lord's of hosts. I'm not here to take sides. I am here to take over. And if you've taken my course on angelology, then you know that this man that Joshua met, who is dubbed here the angel of the Lord, is the same person that Moses met at the burning bush. Joshua, like Moses, do not meet an ordinary angel, but the angel of Yahweh. And as you let Scripture interpret Scripture, and I walk through that whole thing in that course, and it's online if it's of interest to you in our Institute of Biblical Studies, Letting Scripture interpret Scripture, we discover that one of the members of the Godhead would at times under the Old Testament era appear as the angel of the Lord. And you learn it was the second member of the Godhead, the Lord Jesus himself. Ever before Jesus incarnated himself at Bethlehem, he came as the angel of the Lord. And that's why after Bethlehem, you never see the angel of the Lord again in Scripture. And so when Joshua comes to grips with the reality of the person that's before him, he takes off his sandals and he worships the Lord. Listen, no angel would have ever allowed himself to have been worshipped unless this angel is no ordinary angel, and indeed, it's God himself. And so the second member of the Trinity... He serves here as the commander-in-chief because the Father has given him the armies of heaven, as we studied in the Revelation. And so Joshua simply surrenders himself, and he worships the Lord. He takes off his sandals. He falls prostrate in the dust because he knows he's in the presence of God Almighty. Listen, Joshua really needed to worship God he needed to worship the Lord and able to, to be able to believe and embrace the battle plan that he had. And it's often in worship that God gives you clear thought. It's important that when you come here, you come to worship. It's important during the week that you spend time with God in worship. He needed to fill his mind with the presence of God, and that's what he is doing. And some of us, we have so filled our mind with the problems of the day that that's what consumes us. 
And we can't really hear God speak from his word. There is a principle in Scripture, you glance at your problems, but you gaze at the Lord. And I have found the more that I worship the Lord, both physically and mentally, I'm able to hear from the Bible in a clearer way. Now, listen, the angel Lord simply says, I'm not here to take sides. I'm here to take over. It's not a matter of getting God on your side. It's a matter of you getting on God's side. And when that happens, you're going to grow in your faith. Now, look at chapter 6 and verse 1. Chapter 6 and verse 1. And the grammatical construction in my Hebrew Bible is such that it is an event that quickly follows this. The chapter and verse divisions are artificial. But this is all part of the same very encounter. Look at the parenthetical note that the chapter opens with in verse 1. Now, Jericho was tightly shut because of the sons of Israel. No one went out and no one came in. So the Jericonians, they were ready for war. They were exercising top security. No one in, no one out of the city. Further, we're told in verse 2, the Lord said to Joshua, see, I've given Jericho into your hand with its king and the valiant warriors. You shall march around the city, all the men of war circling the city once. You shall do so for six days. Also, seven priests shall carry seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. Then on the seventh day, you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. They were going to march around the city once a day for six days, and then seven times on the seventh day for a total of 13 times. Look at verse 5. It shall be... Then when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, the shafar, and when you hear the sound of the trumpet, all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat, and the people will go up every man straight ahead. Here was God's plan for victory given to a general, to a military man. Now, God does not tell him to dig trenches. God does not tell him to build battering rams. God does not tell him to get ladders and scale the walls. He doesn't tell him to tunnel underneath the walls. They couldn't batter down the walls. They had to believe the walls down. That was God's plan. And I can hear maybe some of the rank and file, maybe day five, Joshua, what are we doing? This is the fifth day we've been around. Nothing's happening. And he would say, we're just waiting on God. This is only day five, guys. We have to wait till day seven, and on day seven, we're going to march around seven days. The captain of the Lord of hosts has given me this word. Look, headquarters is not in this tent. It's in heaven. Listen, I'm just a buck private. I'm serving the Lord God of hosts. This is his plan. You see, faith, even though it may not understand it, believes it. I don't understand everything I may do. But if God said it, then that, I am to believe it, and I am to respond to it. And let me tell you that the Bible, first and foremost, is a book to be believed, then it is to be obeyed. You believe whether or not you will take God in his word at face value. And the people of this world will not always understand why you do what you do. You're here on Sunday. Some of your neighbors are out on the river, they're at the beach, they're doing something else, and they don't know why every week you get up to worship God. They laugh at you 
for taking the Lord's Day seriously. They scoff at you for the different set of standards that you follow for raising your children. All you know is that you have a truth from the Word of God, and you may not understand it, but you believe it, and therefore you obey it. I mean, when I started tithing, I was thinking about it this week over 40 years ago. I didn't understand it. That God said I could do more with nine-tenths than I could with ten-tenths. But he said it, and by the way, the church believed that until 1920. This idea that tithing has no application for today is recent in the history of the church. And again, tithing is done ever before God codified it in the law. I didn't understand it, but I believed it, and I was committed to obeying it. Listen, the world may laugh at you. They may scoff at you. But God will have the last laugh. Seems like the world is falling apart, but God is on his throne. What we are witnessing is exactly what he prophesied. So faith waits on God. It trusts God. It obeys God. Now look, notice verse 14. Thus the second day, they marched around the city once and returned to the camp. They did so for six days. Verse 15. Then on the seventh day, they rose early at the dawning of the day and marched around the city in the same manner seven times. Only on that day, they marched around the city seven times. Now, God was teaching them a great lesson. He was teaching them the lessons of patience. Suppose on the third day, they said, we've had enough. Suppose on the seventh day, after five times, they said, I'm whooped. We're not doing this again the walls would not have crumbled. God had given a clear word, and they were to believe that word in faith. And there are some of you who are listening to me today, and you've lost patience, and you're ready to quit, and you need to trust God that he is in control. Look at verse 16. At the seventh time, when the priests blew the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, shout, for the Lord, encircle the next two words, has given. To the Lord has given you the city. Right before the walls falls, he says, shout. Why? Because the Lord has given you the city. Not the Lord might give you the city, or even that the Lord shall in the future give you the city, but the Lord has given you the city. Now, the city had not yet fallen, but Joshua claimed it as theirs because he knew in the mind and heart of God it was promised and it was as good as conquered. Now, remember, the Lord had already told them, told him in Joshua 6 and verse 5, all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat, and the people will go up every man straight ahead. He knew the word of God. He had a promise from God, and so he speaks a word of faith. Where did he get this faith? The same place you'll get it. Not through some ecstatic experience, not through some liver quiver experience. Faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of God. He did not just decide that he wanted the walls of Jericho to fall down so he would believe God for it. Faith is not dreaming something up on your own. It's going to the Holy Scripture, finding out what God says, and you believe it because God promised it. Now, you must believe God for something that is already so because he has said it in his word, and he has promised, I have given you the city, and so he responds in faith. Now, God first must speak. Now, he may illuminate to your heart. 
Don't say, well, God gave me a revelation. He's never given you a revelation. There's no new revelation. Now, he might give you an illumination. He might take what he has inspired and illuminate it to your heart where you understand it, and he shows you how to apply it. When I went into the ministry some 45 years ago, the issue that was facing the church was the inerrancy of the Bible. Is the Bible without error? That's not the issue facing the evangelical church today. The evangelical church is facing the issue, is the Scripture sufficient? And yes, it is sufficient. We don't need a Beth Moore, Sarah Young kind of text message, direct revelation from God, because this is it. This book is sufficient. Now, understand, Elijah, go back to 2 Kings. He is not randomly walking around, oh, let's go to this place or go to that place. He is going to these specific places, and there's a reason why there's a prophetic guild in each of these places. He could look back over his own life and recall the victories of faith with the raven there at the brook and the jug and the jar and the resuscitated child along with the Mount Carmel experience, all done in faith. And Jericho would be a great place to have a school of prophets and a great place to bring his mentor because this is a place where they had to walk by faith. Now look at 2 Kings chapter 2 and verse 4. Elijah said to him, Elisha, please stay here for the Lord has sent me to Jericho. But he said, as the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they came to Jericho. Now they meet another school of prophets. Notice verse 5. The sons of the prophets who were at Jericho approached Elisha and said, Do you know that the Lord will take your master from over you today? The prophet's response to Elisha seems rather intellectual, cerebral, but for Elisha, this is his friend. This is his mentor. This is his brother in the Lord. This is a painful time. And by the way, the mark of a true student of Scripture is a burning heart, not a big head. Knowledge in and of itself, Paul says, just puffs you up. We need, a, we need Emmaus Road disciples where when they hear Jesus open the Scriptures, they said, were not our hearts burning from within as he was speaking to us on the road, explaining the Scriptures to us? And so they say to Elisha here in verse 5, do you know that the Lord will take away your master from over you today? And he answered, yes, I know. Be still. Again, don't talk to me about it. Again, the implication, it's too painful for me to even think about. So here's this man who's been a prophet in training, and he's received his theological education from a man who had a passionate heart for God. That's a sad thing in many seminaries of the world. Men who have head knowledge but no passion for God. I had some professors like that in my own seminary, and some of them went down the tube, and they don't even walk with Christ today. Now, you'd expect this mature disciple of Elijah to respond, yes, I know Elijah is going to be taken away today. I know he's headed to paradise. Praise the Lord. But that's not what he says. Please notice verses 6 and 7. Then Elijah said to him, please stay here. There's the third time. Please stay here, for the Lord has sent me to the Jordan. And he said, as the Lord lives and as you yourself live, 
I will not leave you. So the two of them went on. So he continued to test the devotion of Elisha, and Elisha continues to stick with him. He anticipates the departure. He doesn't want to leave him. He faithfully follows him throughout the whole day. He does not want to leave his master. So the two of them went on. Now look at verse 7. Now 50 men of the sons of the prophets went and stood opposite them at a distance while the two of them stood by the Jordan. Now why the Jordan River? Why bring Elisha to this spot? And why would there be another seminary of prophets here? Well, again, for Israel, the Jordan River marked the end of a 40-year wilderness experience. It pictured, in essence, death to the old life and a brand new life as they went into the land of promise. And so Elisha is literally saying, again, be quiet, hush. I don't want to hear what you have to say. And so they go to the Jordan. Now, let me give you a picture here of the Jordan River. This is actually the place where the crossing took place. You say, that doesn't look that impressive. We go here and we baptize. There was another place for years and years we would baptize people in the Jordan until uh, Israel and the nation of Jordan, the people standing on this side on the platform are in Israel, where those trees are on the other side of the river, that's the country of Jordan. You say, it doesn't look that big a river to me. It doesn't look that impressive to me. But understand that this was before the Jordan River started being drained dry for irrigation and regulated with water locks at its source there as it came from Mount Hermon into the Sea of Galilee, and then it fed the Jordan River. Here's a more recent photo. We saw a little more water on this occasion. It's a little bit wider, and you can see even a little white water if you look carefully. It was a raging river during the flood season. Are they crossing the Jordan River when they go into the promised land during flood season? Yes, they are. How do we know? Because as soon as they get to the other side, they celebrate Passover. This is the rainy season. This is the height of it. Here's a picture of a photo taken in 1935 before they regulated it much. You can look at pictures 75 years ago, and you will see at flood stage, the river was anywhere from 100 yards to one mile wide. So describing their crossing in Joshua chapter 3, listen to these words. So when the people set out from their tents to cross the Jordan with the priests carrying the Ark of the Covenant before the people, and when those who carried the Ark came into the Jordan and the feet of the priests carrying the Ark were dipped in the edge of the water for the Jordan overflows, all its banks, all the days of harvest, the waters which were flowing down from above stood and rose up in one heap. Then they made a memorial, the Bible says, 12 stones in the middle and on the outside. And every time their kids would go by, hey, Dad, what do those 12 stones mean? God would say, that's the day God stopped the waters of the Jordan River and we left into the promised land. And so the Bible records in Joshua chapter 4 and then in verse 18, it came about when the priests who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord had come up from the middle of the Jordan and the soles of the priests' feet were lifted up to the dry ground that the waters of the Jordan returned to their place and went over all its banks as before. So this is where the pilgrims, so to speak, died because they crossed the Jordan and they were no longer pilgrims. They had arrived at home and so Jordan was the place when after Moses dies that Joshua takes the leadership. 
He conquers Jericho. They cross the Jordan River. It's a magnificent thing to watch. And so Elijah brought Elijah to this place because it was a place of miraculous deliverance. It was a place where God brought them, in essence, into a new land. It was a place of transition. It's the place where he is going to be captured up into glory. And by the way, this is the same place because the New Testament identifies it. The Jordan River is obviously a long river, but this is the place where John the Baptist baptized Jesus. This is the same place in this next picture that we saw earlier. Uh, the Bible records that Jesus was baptized across from Jericho near Bethany. Good of God to send a dove that day. Pretty cool. In either case, Jesus was baptized here. What I'm wanting you to see is that these are no random places. God Almighty is leading his prophet to these three different seminaries where the sons of the prophets are, and each of these three places have great significance in Israel's history. And in some respects, they become a picture of the Christian life. First, you have to have a Bethel. Have you been born again? Unless you're born again, you will never see the inside of heaven. And if you don't know you're born again, it typically means you're not. I mean, you can't know it, you can't have it and not know it, trust me. You should come to meet the pastor on Thursday night. If you're live streaming, you should live stream 7 p.m. this Thursday. But we also need to have a Jericho kinds of experiences where we walk by faith every single day, believing God. That means you're feeding on his word. Why? Because we wage war not against flesh and blood. There are spiritual battles that we face in the Christian life. And John says, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. But someday, maybe sooner than we realize... We'll have a Jordan River kind of experience, and we'll cross over to the next side, to that place that God has prepared for us. We will come to the end of our journey. Jesus said, I go and prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And that's not a bad thing. That's not a bad place to be. That's a doorway into the very presence and the blessings of God himself so God takes us through justification, through sanctification, and someday as we cross over our Jordan into glorification. Elijah and Elisha traveled to Bethel, to Jericho, and to the Jordan all in one day, roughly 28 miles. And tomorrow when we conclude our message entitled Elijah's Departure, we're going to witness an amazing scene as a chariot of fire comes to take Elijah away. To listen again to today's study, use the Search the Scriptures app for smartphones and tablets, or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. You can also call 877-787-7478 and request program ELI9. Join us again tomorrow as we near the end of our study of Elijah and Search the Scriptures. For thousands of years, no place on earth has been more precious to God's people than the land of Israel. It was here that God first chose to bring the Messiah, and it is where He will usher in His second coming. 
Nothing compares to visiting the places you've only read about. For those serious students of the Bible, a trip to Israel adds depth and interest to every page of Scripture. Search the Scriptures Israel tour is far more than a vacation. It's a spiritual journey that will impact your faith in an intense way. I'd love for you to go with me to Israel September the 28th to October the 8th or October the 7th to October the 17th. If you would like to have information, you can go online to stsisraeltour.com. The price is inclusive for everything. Airfare, hotels, three meals a day, tips, everything. Everything.